Welcome back, popsters. I, uh, there's many things I could be talking about this week that people have messaged me about, um, including very, very pop culture items, such as the whole Simone Bio situation or the persistence, unending persistence of the Jennifer Lopez, Ben Affleck flexes throughout San Tropez, which I just don't have the energy to talk about this week. Um, and I am alone this week. Again, I know. I can't be joined by guests every week. So you will have to bear with me and you will have to bear with just me this week. But um, instead, we are detouring into more of a true crime um, story that has been the inspiration for several books, several thought pieces, um, several podcasts. <laughs> I've done a lot of deep dive on this and, um, a documentary in 2015 that not only took about, talked about this case, but other, the phenomenon around it, but also a movie in that was released in 2021. Um, I am talking about the Ross Ulrich and the Silk Road case. If you have not heard about it, stay tuned because it is a pretty fascinating case and it brings up a lot of questions around um, how things are prosecuted in regards to cyber crimes and um, also questions surrounding what a free marketplace looks like and if there should be parameters around this. Of course, my answer is yes on that, but there is a belief system out there that there should not be. There should be absolutely no government oversight and what have you. So we will be talking about that. Also, stay tuned at the end of the episode after I discuss this. There will be a Ask Persephone question of the week. So a little reminder, if you have any questions for me that you would like me to answer that Yes, you could probably Google yourself or do your own research, but just too damn lazy to do so because you know I'll do the work. Um, go to the Pop Culture Persephone website and look for Ask Persephone. It will provide you with some directions on how to leave me a message. You can do this and leave your name or you can do it anonymously. I don't really care either way, but if you leave your name, of course, I'll give you a shout out. Um, and I will address it on the next podcast. And, um, unless I have a bunch in the queue, but right now I didn't. So, um, I have a frequent guest and a frequent contributor to Ask Persephone asking me questions this week. So stay tuned for the end of this. Um, thank you again for tuning in and let's get popping.
you. You are making those dreams a reality. You are doing what I didn't have the patience for. These last eight years now in prison, over and over, I've been so impressed with how far we've come. But back then, I was impatient. I rushed ahead with my first idea, which was Silk Road. Silk Road. Silk Road was a website I made when I was 26 years old, more than a decade ago now. It used Tor and Bitcoin to protect people's privacy. I called it an anonymous market. At the time, I thought if Bitcoin makes payments anonymous and private, then what are we waiting for? Why are we sitting around talking about it? Let's put it into action. That's impulsive. That's a 26-year-old who thinks, thinks he has to save the world before someone beats him to it. So I have already found a way to mispronounce his name, but um, bringing us into this episode, that was Ross Albrecht um, calling into the 2021 Bitcoin conference in Miami. So that was pretty recent. And um, he has been interviewed since his arrest in 2015. But um, I thought it was great to kind of hear his voice and hear his thoughts and his perspective a little bit. That that interview kind of goes on and on. Um, and it's interesting because you can hear some of the regret in his voice. But you can also hear some of his, I would say, positivity um, and hopefulness around like the future of cryptocurrency and things of that nature. But essentially, um, he is locked in a cage in a Tucson penitentiary and he is serving two life sentences plus 40 years without the chance of parole. So that is crazy. I believe it's less of a sentence than the Unabomber got. Um, and the big question comes out after looking at this case and, you know, I, I've read a lot of articles and um, I watched the documentary and the film, um, which have, I would definitely say, two different directions and perspectives of his ambition and his responsibility. Um, And I don't have any, (laughs) after all of this, I don't really think I have any true belief I you know the truth is somewhere in between here um to see if he was responsible but essentially um you know he was sent to jail there was he was there was about seven different counts that he was convicted of but it was really setting up the anonymous um marketplace Silk Road which enabled people to go on anonymously and through encryption to purchase a variety of things. Now, Silk Road had many different things that you could purchase on there anonymously. Um, Some legit, but the bulk 
of the items that were on there that people were purchasing were drugs. And I mean anything from, you know, weed, mushrooms, to heroin. So it was pretty crazy. And um, ironically, when he first set up the site, he had to be the first vendor as well. He had to really create, and I would say that was probably the most brilliant way he marketed himself. He had to really create that demand himself for people to, you know, have that enthusiasm, that interest, and that trust to go on and not only start selling, but start buying on the marketplace. So he had learned how to grow... um, I never say this right. Celebison mushrooms, magic mushrooms, out of like his apartment. And so he had learned how to do that. And he went on the site and he went under a different name and he became essentially the first vendor and sent, you know, the drugs anonymously to himself. Um, really kind of as the test for it to see if it worked. And it did. And um, he really started building it up from there in a very short time, um, which was pretty, which was pretty interesting, pretty ambitious to be quite honest. But I think the big question is how did this kid get from here? So, and again, there is a lot on this case, guys. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to get into every single bit because then this would be literally a multi-part podcast, which those are already out there for this. And you know, that's not, I'm not doing that. But, um, so Ross was a born, he was born in Austin, Texas from a middle you know, middle-class family, really smart kid. Um, and his family, he spent a lot of time in Costa Rica. His family had like rental properties in Costa Rica. So he grew up with kind of a different mindset, but he was an Eagle Scout, you know, really diligent student. He ended up getting like a full scholarship um, to University of Texas at Dallas, uh, majored in physics. Um, and then he would move on to get a full scholarship to Penn State for his master's. And he got another type of science-related degree on that. Um, while in college, especially while in Penn State, he started really, really getting um, absorbed with his, you know, he is a self-described libertarian. He really, really, and he started becoming very active in many libertarian efforts um, and really like living under some of those principles of, you know, just seeing not really, he was not about uh, the materialism and living very, very humbly. Um, everything they, they were saying in many different sources that everything that Ross had could be into trash bags. So even though eventually he would go on to create something that resulted in 
earning him like billions of dollars, really. It was not about the money. It, it truly wasn't. You didn't see him, even at the height of this, out there spending money in any way, shape, or form as some type of drug kingpin. That's one of the more interesting things about this. So when he'll go on um, and talk in these high terms about um, doing a lot of this and creating this marketplace as it symbolized freedom for him and it symbolized the next wave, I tend to believe him um, because he was... You know, he was in his early 20s and really not, there wasn't this um, domino effect of like getting this money and spending this money and living this really high life. I mean, it just seemed as it grew more and more, the pressure grew more and more. So I'm on a tangent, but um, even though he had graduated with this master's in something science related Um, And he was doing some day trading as well. He just wasn't... There was a definite pool in some way to be doing something financially as well. And he ended up going into the dot-com world. He had this um, business called Good Wagon Books in Austin that, you know, he was a lot more attracted to not working for something. Entrepreneurial pursuits. I can't talk today. And with that... He started Good Wagon Books, which the concept was really like donate your used books um, and, you know, we will donate, send in your used books and these will be donated to prisons, people in need, things of that nature. It didn't really take off. It didn't really last that long, but he ended up using essentially the shell of that for some time um, before shutting it down. As a, I don't want to say as a way to launder this illegal venture, but he certainly was using the books themselves at times to transfer things, to, to uh, ship different things out, especially when he was serving as the vendor for Silk Road. So um, with Silk Road, he had he had eventually ended up moving to San Francisco. One of his best friends was living there and feeling a little bit lost, I think, because not quite sure next steps to make. He knew that this Good Wagon Books wasn't doing much. Um, and he was becoming more and more fascinated with the deep web or the dark web, as some people call it. I think they're interchangeable, but essentially the hidden web um, for people. I've always been intrigued by this, and I still don't completely understand it. I did do a little bit more research, and I found out that the um, U.S. Navy actually is the first... They're the ones who first initially developed this dark web, which is really fascinating because now it, it's become a situation which the U.S. government created it. Now the U.S. government is out there prosecuting it, which is a little bit with the war on drugs coming down the road in this conversation because 
it kind of feeds itself. You know, you have the DEA, you have the FBI, you have the CIA out there, and you have complete departments within the government that are created to fight the war on drugs. Um, They're really existing and persisting in a way because this paradigm is out there for like violence on the street and these large illegal drug empires. Um, so that's a whole other thing. Again, this is why I always need somebody to come on here with me to like rein me in and keep me on task. But, um, I'm kind of trying, (laughs) trying to get the timeline of this and we'll see if I, we'll see if I succeed. Um, so Ross is about 26 years old at this point. Um, when he starts to develop the concept of Silk Road. And this is all, you know, this is all really stemming from his libertarian beliefs that he truly believes that there should be a marketplace that you're able to go through and get around any types of regulation from the state. And again, he's like, well, we can use this deep, this dark web, you know, which is the hidden web that <clears throat> really is most associated with terrorism. <laughs> Probably in the general public, most associated with terrorism, um, you know, child porn, drugs, really some heavy shit. And through other research, I did find out that oftentimes journalists, um, insurgents, folks like that also will utilize this source to get, you know, this area to anonymously get information or communicate via the web. So I still tend to believe that the grand majority of it, in spite of the deep web documentary that I watched, um, which I highly suggest that documentary, 2015's Deep Web. Um, it's directed by Alex Winter. Alex Winter, most uh, who has come, go, gone on to become really a documentarian, a director, a writer. Um, but most people know him as um, one half of Bill and Ted. And he was in the recent Bill and Ted movie, Bill and Ted Face the Music. But he was also in like the Lost Boys. But really after that, he ventured more into the behind the scenes. Um, And actually Keanu Reeves narrates it. So yeah, still friends with Keanu. Again, a tangent. But um, check out Deep Web. But the Deep Web documentary very much is on more of the side of, you know... They're really talking about people being like cyber heroes on the deep web and that it's not all crime, crime, crime. It's used for other sort, used for other reasons and we shouldn't be limiting people on the deep web. So I feel very, you know, torn about that. Um, but using the deep web and again, Ross is not a coder. He does not, he is smart as hell. So he... And he is not at this point in the pre-development of Silk Road consulting with anyone. He is teaching himself 
how to write code and develop this website. So if this is not your background, you can imagine some of those early mistakes and vulnerabilities that you're opening up this website creation to, I'm thinking. Even if you're going and using... um, even if you're going and using like Tor, which he ends up using, and Tor is um, Tor is essentially a free and open source software that enables you to communicate anonymously over the internet. So it directs traffic through a through a worldwide a worldwide uh, network, a router. It conceals the user's location and all those things. So he knows to use that, but the actual building and creation of the website, I think, was filled with some vulnerability. So if you had somebody who was going in there with a background, whether they're from like the FBI or it's just somebody who is a coder, they're going to be able to see some of those vulnerabilities. And it is one of the things that at least the FBI says help sink him. Even early on, um, he's pretty bold. He goes into a a few like um, chat rooms for different web sites and um, I think some crypto people, cyber people, and he's really asking specifically about some coding questions. Um, And he's also feeding some of these sites like this He's trying to gauge some interest. Um, he's trying, he goes to like this one site called the Mushroomery, which is really for people who are interested in buying, selling, growing their own mushrooms. Um, he goes in and he starts feeding them ideas to go and visit the Silk Road and that he's utilized it, not knowing that he is the creator of this. Um, so he's really trying to drive people to this site. Um, so this information was able to be found early, you know, during the two year, you know, search of trying to figure out who the hell created, um, Silk Road, but it was able, they were able to find it and they were able to link it back to him. So by no matter what, regardless of who ended up being the big time power behind this and or the voice or voices of Silk Road. He is definitely the originator of it. Um, And he was definitely doing things independently early on. So when he's developing this and he's developing this free and open marketplace, again, all based on his libertarian concept of like, you know, and he continues to say things and he's building this site and, um, he, uh, he comes up with the concept of this marketplace and he does have some rules that we're going to allow people to, you know, as long as you do no harm to one another, then all is fine on the Silk Road. Um, so the irony around this, of course, is drugs. So apparently there were different standards. There was high standards for the people who were selling that, you know, you really have to assess. They had to really assess the people that were coming in and wanting to sell to make sure they were 
you know, provide a lot of disclaimers and make sure you know you're ingesting this drug or what have you. Still, I mean, give me a break. Especially, <laughs> apparently this was only, you know, 18 and over, but, you know, people could go on to this. I mean, the whole concept of people going on anonymous, anonymously, as long as they knew how to use Tor to go and buy what the hell ever, how are you really going to monitor that? And there were cases that they found out, you know, there were people getting arrested down the road who were underage, um, you know, with their parents finding like drugs in, you know, drugs being sent directly to their house. And of course, when they're building this, when they're building this site, there's all these forums and chat rooms in there and rule not rules but guidelines of suggestions especially to the vendors of how to send the drugs how to receive you know um always to have that at a return address that is not theirs um hopefully to be sending the drugs to um a site that is not the actual user's home so while all of these things are in place as suggestions it's not like everyone's going to end up following them especially as the site grows but again their big principle his big principle is we're not allowing anything stolen there will be no child porn there won't be any snuff films anything um for direct harm well Many, many um, people can, many people could suggest that selling drugs anonymously over the internet is going to cause direct harm, of course. And also his thought process around this is, you know, we are really, we're really helping to lessen the war on drugs. What we're doing is, you know... We're allowing this much safer way for people to procure drugs. So it's not on the streets. So even some, even vendors or drugs, I mean, drug sellers that have high volume, they can, this is the way that they can move their product in a much safer and anonymous format. And, um, yeah, so interesting, an interesting concept. Um, and again, it is a threat in a way to your DEA, your feds and what have you, who are, their careers revolve around going after drug dealers in a very specific way. And now all of a sudden you're dealing with this anonymous um, drug, this anonymous internet interface with servers and VPNs and everything like that. So he's developing this. Um, it starts to catch fire a little bit. People are starting to notice it. Um, a Gawker article comes out. I'm going to see if I can find it and I'll put it on the website. Um, I think his name is David Chen who wrote it, which talks to interviews um, Ross, obviously anonymously, and talks about the concepts around Silk Road. Essentially, the Gawker article is, um, well, there's an anonymous place you can go and buy drugs. And it it really does push, it pushes Silk Road into the next level. It becomes extremely popular. Um, not only that, but about a year after, less than a year after that, um, Chuck Schumer 
politician Chuck Schumer learns about Silk Road and he pushes them into the stratosphere. It's essentially like, you know, there is no bad press. I mean, this is horrible press, <laughs> essentially. But um, he goes and he opens this case up to, he elevates this case on a federal level, saying there is this horrible thing out there called Silk Road. And as a nation, we must shut it down. They are, this deep website is boldly selling drugs online. So he has a mission. He has a goal. And this really, this is really what opens up the case. This is really what pushes the case to the forefront with the feds, the FBI. But moving into this, um, in... Yeah, the it's growing. It continues to grow. The site continues to grow. And in about within the first year of it, because Ross is Ross is having to get some admins on there. He needs some help on there. So he's working with people anonymously. He does not meet anybody, but um, he, his admin name, and he takes it on himself, is um, Dread Pirate Roberts from, if anybody's ever watched The Princess Diary, the Wesley character takes on that name. But, you know, very famously, that name belongs to many people. He's like, I'm borrowing this essential pseudonym, and at one point someone else will have it. So that becomes a very important part of this because there are different people that become the Dread Pirate Roberts over time. And it becomes very difficult to connect Ross with all of these things as the defense for the case when when the Silk Road gets shut down. Ross will come to say, listen, yes. I was initially the first Dread Pirate Roberts, but there were other admins on there. There were other people, you know, taking credit for things that I didn't do. There were other people doing such things as making a hit out on someone. Um, he had he would go on to claim that he had nothing to do with that. Because at one point, one of the charges against him is attempted murder. Because... The Dread Pirate Roberts, at this stage, everybody's like, it has to be Ross, puts a hit on at least two different, two different administrators who quote unquote go rogue. Um, And one who isn't paying him and one who is extorting him for money. And it turns out the one is someone who gets busted by the feds. And sings like a canary and they have to, um, they like fake this guy's death. It's very elaborate. Um, and all those things. And it all comes out of the Dread Pirate Roberts at this time, you know, the FBI saying who is definitely, they don't know it's Ross at this point. They're trying to figure out who the hell this person is, who, who the founder is, um, has put this hit out. So... Of course, this person isn't dead, but whoever DPR is thinks they are and thinks that this is like a rogue admin. 
Um, and it happens with someone else as well. Somebody who's ex- trying to extort money. So that's not looking good for him. So even though they haven't identified specifically who this, who this person is yet, they're building up their case, them being the FBI. Um, and he's essentially, he's essentially moving around. His paranoia is getting higher and higher as the site grows more and more popular. And he's seeing different situations where people are getting arrested. Like, a, you know, some, like he, he sees like when a couple people are getting arrested for, you know, buying stuff and the package gets infiltrated by the police or the package gets infiltrated by somebody in the home who then reports it. So there's, with the growth, the risk is growing. And um, he also is, he can't really keep up with the demand. And without truly knowing who is working for him, since everyone is anonymous, you can imagine the confusion around things. Well, he's working with a couple different He's working with a couple different admins that he's been working with from the beginning who are, you know, helping him with vendor recruitment and who are helping him really manage the site. How does he know if he can trust any of these people, essentially? And he really doesn't. Some of these people that are on there um, as either vendors, as customers, and even as admins happen to be um, FBI agents. So there is no way for him to really trust because after the Chuck Schumer declaration that we are going at war with Silk Road and it is our job as the government to shut them down, a huge task force was created and they, they definitely had, um, a lot of warring forces within that task force. So there was a lot of people that I think this case could have, you know, I think that with a little bit more cooperation, they could have really even closed this down faster, but there was infighting within the FBI and the DEA. People want, people thought other people were taking credit for things. Um, but they were really, um, they were really getting this pressure from Chuck Schumer to, you know, shut this shit down at all means. And it would come out. Um, I mean, it took about two years for the feds to implicate and shut down the site. Um, and when they did, um, when they did, Ross was about 29 and they had tracked him down to a library in San Francisco. So I don't know if he was always going into public sites and then going through tour to work on his, um, to work on, what am I saying? Um, Silk Road. Uh, I think at this point his paranoia was mounting and he was kind of felt like, oh, this is safer if I can kind of move around and I'm not in my apartment or what have you, but they were able to, the FBI was there kind of in a sting operation and they were able to, they knew it was him, but they needed proof essentially. And 
if he had closed his laptop, his laptop was set up so that it would be immediately encrypted. So you would not be able to access anything. So they had to bust him while his, while he would log on to the Silk Road site through Tor in the, and the laptop was still open and they were able to do it. They caused a diversion. They were able to do it and they arrested him and they, he was 29 years old and they were able to not only seize about $36.6 billion in Bitcoin that he had in little drives throughout his, again, he had these in drives throughout his apartment, which is insane. So he was not spending, again, he was not spending this money, it seemed really. Um, But they had a bunch of charges on him, such as drug trafficking, conspiracy, money laundering, hacking and murder for hire because of those uh, those incidents that were those two definite two different incidents where where someone using the name dread pirate roberts where they linked back to him in a variety of different ways was um had called the hits on at least two people no and these murders did not happen but they, both of these murder for hire situations were set up by the FBI. Also, ironically, there was a undercover agent whose background was definitely not cyber crimes that was assigned to this. And he had a bit of a past and he ended up going a bit rogue and <laughs> he ended up um, blackmailing Ross or Dread Pirate Roberts, depending on who you believe is talking at this point, and pilfering out, like, stealing, like, I think $40,000 worth of um, Bitcoin. It was insane. He ended up getting prosecuted as well, but he was working on the case. He wasn't... It's insane. If you watch the movie Silk Road, there's one version of it, and then if you read... um, there's a different version of it. Uh, There's a much more Hollywood version in the Silk Road movie, which I did not love the movie. I especially did not love the movie after I started, after I started reading other things, after I started listening to other podcasts, after I um, watched the documentary, because it seemed to really, really focus equal parts on Ross and equal parts on this rogue cop. And I honestly could give a shit about this rogue cop. Um, They made it really like, well, this guy needs this money desperately to redeem himself with his estranged wife and his child needs the money. So it was a little bit like whatever. I would have much rather had seen this. I think this story, and maybe they'll still do it. I think this story definitely, definitely deserves a kind of a mini series format or a multi, you know, episode format, like something on Netflix, something on Amazon. Um, Nick Robinson, who plays Ross, I think is pretty great. He was in, if anybody's watched, essentially the big, the first big gay rom-com, not really a rom-com, but gay teen drama. Um, I think it was called Love, Simon. It was so cute. I went with many of my gay male friends to the movie theater to see it. I think it was very big for them to like, you know, this is our like romantic 
like walk to remember <laughs> type movie for gay guys. And it was cute. It was a very cute movie. But he was in that and he's adorable. And um, I talked about it in a, pod, in a podcast about sometime this last year. Hulu did the series based on the movie A Teacher. And he was in that and he is so good in that. I highly suggest that. He's a good actor. Um, he does kind of remind me of somebody I used to date once, which it's a little disarming to look at him, but he is still a good actor <laughs> all the same. Um, but the, you know, again, it took them two years to take this down. Um, and throughout this website, there's, there's like, the forum alone, like the forum discussions are probably the most interesting aspects because there's essentially political manifestos in there and large, big discussions on free market philosophy. And so the people who are very, who saw this site as this, as this free marketplace that represented just freedom and, um, no control from government really was like this was a this is a revolutionary site because of just the just the forum alone in the idea sharing that people were putting out there which is i think something to take into consideration um and i think he was really he was very young and he was very ambitious just kind of like he said in that bitcoin interview uh, when he called into that Bitcoin convention. Um, you can kind of hear it in his voice. He even says, you know, I was really young and I was really impatient because again, they used, and I should have brought this up. They used the cryptocurrency Bitcoin to purchase everything. And this was really in the early days of Bitcoin. Like cryptocurrency was not super, super popular. But what it does is it anonymously, again, enables you to purchase things anonymously using this non-traceable method. And Bitcoin has, you know, really moved light years from the stage that it was in, you know, 2012. Um, I believe 20, yeah, 2012 when the Silk Road first opened. Um, obviously, there's huge conventions for it now, but that was really the currency that was used for it. Obviously, he didn't allow any type of this was before before Venmo or anything like that. But like even I don't believe I don't know a Venmo. Venmo is not anonymous, though. Um, that's just a different, easier method to like connected to your credit cards or your or connected to your bank that you can you know, pay for things, but, you know, this was definitely, um, an ambitious way to start and without, and I understand his paranoia with not being a coder and with doing everything on his own and kind of figuring it out on his own, he opened himself to these vulnerabilities. Now, a huge thing that happened um, with this is all of these, not only um, were these informants all over that Silk Road, um, there were like undercover agents, there were people that the FBI, you know, found kind of like the one guy, 
I think his, I think his name was Chronic Pain. Um, he was like a 47-year-old dude. He was the one who ended up getting busted. Um, he was working as a high-level administrator. And he had this whole other life, you know. And he was one of the ones that the FBI had arrested, infiltrated, everything, and said, you know, we're going to stage your death. So, you know, he's the one that sung like, so they had informants like that, but they also had undercover people working. Um, so they had a lot, they had a lot of evidence against Ross, but one of the big, one of the big situations that came out of this is they were very dodgy about how they found the servers that were um, located somewhere in Austria and Germany. And if this was a violation of the Fourth Amendment, so if this was an illegal search and seizure, so his defense was bringing that up a lot during the trial. No matter what, once he was arrested, his bail was denied. Um, all, all around the concept that they're like, well, he is a dangerous criminal. There's this evidence out there that he, even though it was evidence that you really couldn't prove if it was him acting as Dread Pirate Roberts or if it was another administrator, there was this evidence the prosecution said that was out there that was big enough that said he put two hits on people. He's a dangerous criminal. Obviously, Ross, the Eagle Scout, never had any type of convictions against him. He never was arrested. He obviously has no history as a violent criminal um, when he was arrested at 29. I mean, the biggest criminal thing he ever did, he loved to smoke weed and do shrooms while being like this insanely highly intelligent student. So if anything, it was a case for shrooms and <laughs> weed use among highly intelligent people. But um, again, the definitely the judge in the case was under the Schumer, the Schumer uh, guidance of this person is a, we have to shut down him and everything connected to it. Um, and so when he, when he was arrested, um, not when he was arrested, but the defense just kept on bringing up, you know, you know, these servers, how were these seized? I mean, essentially a case could be thrown out if, if something is not done by the book, by the feds. Now, with everything being, especially with, you know, laws in relation to cyber crimes and what have you, it seems, especially through the research I found, that there are definitely different rules. And they're not playing by the same rule book. And that has been an ongoing issue, as if it is a a, a traditional type of crime, <laughs> um, a crime that is not related to cyber. Um, and that was, again, one of the huge arguments of, so you're not being transparent about, and the judge did not seem to care that the FBI went after them in illegal manners. Um, now, given that, <laughs> Oh, also, did I mention that there was, like, a review system like eBay and Amazon about the drugs? 
on this side. I forgot to say this. I love this part. The Silk Road, there was a very, very um, sophisticated review systems for vendors. So if somebody was selling crystal meth, people were encouraged um, to put their experience up there with that vendor. Um, not only just with their customer service, but with the product, with which was something that people said apparently kept the quality high and kept people honest. I found that interesting. I'm sure that at the beginning stages, it was like that. Um, but I'm sure it also kind of started falling to hell as the monster grew and grew. Um, so while Ross was... This is this is some of the this is some of the things that are interesting. Ross was waiting for trial in 2014. He was um he was arrested in I think 2012. See, this is yeah. 2012 or 20 I really suck at these details. The trial began in 2015. Um, but he was waiting for, he was arrested in 2013 or something like that. Um, aren't I great at this when I'm alone, guys? And <laughs> while he was arrested, though, the even the Silk Road was taken down by the government, it reemerged again somehow <laughs> while he was on trial with somebody else going by the name of DPR. Um, so right there, it shows you that I, first off, I am not saying that every single time DPR was up there, it, I'm sure at many times it was him, but I do think that there is a very, very good chance that it could have been another administrator and we don't know. It could have been the FBI going in and causing more of a situation building up this case going you know maybe we also have him call out a call out on a hit you know you don't know there was so much corruption within this case again there was this undercover agent who went by knob as i mentioned before he's the one that is really highlighted in the movie whether i give a shit or not about him but he's very much highlighted in the movie and he's the one who like um blackmailed Ross for that money. So already he's shady as hell. Um, and he's making up his own rules as he's, he knows he's got to build up this case in some manner, but at the same time, he ends up (laughs) stealing money, which is crazy. So, um, you know, even though their case looked really good and there is an ongoing movement to free him, I'm really, really um being guided by his mother this poor woman who's already had like the poor woman has like already had a heart attack i mean if you listen more and more to the interview um from that bitcoin conference he does talk a lot and i should have played that part about being selfish and not understanding the impact of what this would have, what this was going to do to his family. Um, and it's consumed his family, obviously. Um, it's, you know, it's horrible because he ends up getting, he ends up getting really the book thrown at him. At one point, 
early on, this is what's heartbreaking for him. Um, and again, it's not like I'm on the free raw side. I do think that the sentence is ridiculous. Um, because I do think he is really intelligent and he could do something. He There is a redemption in here, a redemption story that is not going to be able to be realized at all if he's in jail. And I, the, the defense really does claim that he was, he was being framed this whole time by another person with the DPR moniker. I don't know if that is the case. I leave it up to the podcast listeners to go in and do your own research on this because there's a lot of information and a lot of it is opposing. You know, you have the very, you know, you have the very cut and dry FBI DEA version, which is like, he was sloppy. There was holes in the system. We were easily able to find him after two years. Um, And we had informants and we had this and we were able to go in undercover and we're the heroes of this. And we shut down this really evil, 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 dark website that was, you know, just contributing to the drug war. Then you have his side, which is very extreme of, yes, it was illegal to sell drugs, but I was creating a free and open marketplace without government control. It was safe. Um, it was actually helping against the violence on the street with drugs. And the FBI came in and seized this and they did this illegally. And they are using me as an example. They're using me, Ross, as an example for their movement. Not their movement, for really their um, authority. And the judge really did believe that. The judge was did not allow a lot of evidence from the defense in. A ton. A lot of evidence which would have shown, I believe, proof that he was not working independently, that there were people that were working in a very different rogue manner, so that there was no way you could really have attributed all of this stuff on him. But early on, before trial, they they were going to settle out of court. They were considering settling out of court, which would have given him 10 years. They should have taken that deal. But Ross really, really firmly believed that there was no way, that that he really believed, he has convictions that what he was doing, and this was probably naivete, I would say, and um, hope, <laughs> that there was no way to prosecute him even more than 10 years. And he was wrong. He was really, really wrong. Regardless of like the tons of exculpatory evidence that the defense had that came out a couple weeks before trial, all of that was blocked. So nobody heard that. The, you know, the jury didn't hear it. The judge wouldn't allow it. Um, And there's many people on the defense that believed that the American law enforcement hacked a foreign server and got away with it. So, and that was, and they used that evidence to sink him. He ended up getting, um, 
He was ordered to two life sentences plus 40 years. Um, he's already served about eight years to date. And he is in a maximum security federal penitentiary. Um, and it's it's pretty heartbreaking. I mean, for really everybody. Everybody um, involved. Especially the family. I just, yes. And there were definite victims of their sister. There's definitely people that died from the drugs that were sold in this manner. There's always somebody who's going to die in that manner. And that is horrible absolutely horrible but I think what's really heartbreaking is you know what this has done to this kid's family and really because of his ambition and his lack of foresight I would say um, of what this could turn into and I'm sure there were you know he was not a criminal he's not a criminal mastermind so even though he probably thought of himself as one of the most clever people in the room. There were things that were out of his wheelhouse about security over this. And I really think that his need to get information and his need to grow the site by allowing the Gawker article and that ele- and that Gawker article, which caused such a buzz and it caused such focus and attention and growth to the site that elevated up the ranks politically. It became a political um, cause for Chuck Schumer and it became much more of a political lightning rod and then the demands onto the DEA to shut this down by any means necessary, that being the case, um, really sunk it. And then you had a judge who was, who was completely aligned with the, um, completely aligned with the prosecution on this. I do know that, um, during Trump's last days, you know, the, I think it's the last month of the presidency. I suck at this part. Um, (laughs) I know it's always right before the president leaves that they are able to pardon, go on a pardon frenzy. And people really thought, I mean, and Trump pardoned a lot of people, including that asshole Roger Stone. You knew he was going to pardon him. Um, but people really did think that he, uh, Trump was going to pardon him. Um, and looking at the politics of this, I'm kind of surprised he, he didn't, to be quite honest. Um, but that did not happen. I know that Ross has already lost his first um, appeal. And I know that the the movement out there to free him is as strong as ever, especially in the cyber community. Um, and there'll be information on the website about that, a little bit about that. Again, I don't have a strong feeling about this in the fact that I, I feel very mixed about it. I just don't think the sentence should be as long. I think he did need to be punished. But I am also a little sickened about probably the illegal and underhanded shit that the FBI and DEA did to get the result that they wanted. So, again, I know this was not that smooth of a podcast this week. <laughs> 
But really, it's hopefully this made you this got you a little bit interested. So um, you'll go in and investigate this a little bit on your own. Maybe you'll watch the documentary. Maybe you'll watch the movie. Maybe you'll read an article. I'll link some stuff. But it is. It's a pretty interesting case, especially one over if you're interested in government overstep, if you're interested in the dark web and, you know, how crazy it is out there with this stuff. Because essentially when I would ever hear the words dark web, I was like, oh, that's just like this area for, I didn't even think about drugs, to be honest. Um, But... I was like, oh, this is just this marketplace for, like, child porn, snuff films, assassinations, terrorism. I didn't really even consider that there could be a slice of it um, for, you know, for journalism and for things like that where people needed an anonymity. But, like, this marketplace in it, in and of itself is, I don't know how you rein that in. Eventually, at one point on the marketplace, people said that you could hire a hitman, which was exactly against it. So I do think at, at one point it was, regardless of how much he was working on the site and he was devoting to it, because I think at its height, he was, I mean, he had a girlfriend at one point and they ended up breaking up because she was like, this site is taking over your life. You're going to get caught, yada, yada, yada. And all the time was devoted to that. You know, all the time. There was no focus on her whatsoever. Um, But there is also a story about her getting pissed off at him, them breaking up, her telling a friend about Ross creating the Silk Road. And that friend posting, the friend getting pissed off about him or pissed off at her and posting posting that on his Facebook wall. So the leaks were everywhere, just not within the FBI and just not through underhanded ways. I, I definitely think his time was limited on this. Um, it's just a shame with a mind like him because he is extremely intelligent. Um, also, another fact, just to let you know, they came to find out by the end there was at least nine, $9.2 billion in sales. Ross would take a, it started off, I think, a 3% commission of each sale, and it grew to a 10% commission of each sale. And there was at least 960,000 buyers and sellers, which is, goddamn, that's insane. Um, so that is the tale of the Silk Road in a very sloppy manner. Again, there's, not to like beat myself up, but there are much better ways to learn about this. So um, I do, I didn't love the movie, but check out Silk Road movie from 2021. It's on Hulu right now. Um, You can also watch the Deep Web documentary for free on YouTube. The only thing that's annoying about it, um, it might be better to just rent it for $2.99 somewhere because the only thing that's annoying about it is that there's just German subtitles when it comes to when they have just script on the screen. So you do miss a little bit, but it's pretty interesting. It's definitely in the, (laughs) it's definitely very, um, 
affectionate towards the cyberpunks and the free Ross movement, but t- so take that for what you will. You all have your own minds. You can come up with your own thoughts around this, I think. Um, my God, it's raining right now. All right. So thank you for joining me today. This was fun to research and fun to look into. Check out the Pop Culture Persephone website for a lot more details on this. And stay tuned after this little break. Um, we will come back with an Ask Persephone question. Hello, Pop Culture Persephone. This is a question I've been meaning to ask you for a while now. So I'm curious if you could share with the crowd examples of relationships between celebrities and fans that actually worked out. Because when I try to think of examples, it's like a a stalker, like a fan stalking a celebrity or like this Drake Bell thing where it's like a celebrity grooming like a young fan and like taking advantage of their admiration. So I kind of want to know. Have there been any, like, celebrities who have fallen in love with their fans and it was, like, happily ever after? Let me know. Thank you for everything. I love you. Bye. So here is the pop culture Persephone question of the week. Again, I have the funny thing about this question is I've kind of answered it before, but... Mackenzie Merriman, who has called in about this, um, and I have it in a previous podcast. So you'll have to go back and look at the previous podcast. Let me tell you which one specifically so I can let people know. I got to look this up when I'm recording this. I'm Sometimes I'm just so not on top of things, guys. I apologize. Um, trying to figure out which one it is. Um... Uh, not that there's one back here guys that I did a quite I did a question on a few episodes back but essentially the question and it continues to be the question is listen has there been any situations with celebrities and their fans which has resulted in a successful union. And one of the reasons why, um, oh, it is the episode, it is my Benefer 3.0 episode and why history might be repeating itself. So go back there, y'all, first and listen to the Ask Persephone at the end of that because I do discuss that a lot. Um, And that would be um, season two, episode 14. But I will continue on with this a little bit more. So thank you for the question, Mackenzie. Um, And she is bringing up the recent Drake Bell case. Um, Drake was in some show. This is so not my generation. But he was in that Josh and Drake show with Josh Peck. And I did come to find out that Drake Bell, I should just really be talking about Drake Bell, that Drake Bell's name isn't really Drake, it's something else, which I forget. But recently, Drake Bell was 
And I believe he was in Cleveland, but virtually. I don't know if he was in Cleveland, but he was tried in Cleveland on a couple counts of uh, child endangerment, uh, maybe rape, maybe assault. Maybe it, I don't think it was rape, but it was unlawful, you know, child endangerment and sexual advances and what have you, because. He had essentially groomed a fan um, when she was very young, um, up until the point that she was eight, 17. Um, so she's 19 right now. And she, he essentially groomed her and had sexual advances with her. And it's just a really gross situation, really manipulated her and everything. Um, Look it up. I just, I may link something about the case. It's very disturbing. But it is a situation of, um, this is how a celebrity takes advantage (laughs) in the worst way of their fans. So, and there's been other cases of that, don't get me wrong. Um, And I'm sure there's been many cases that we don't know about. Just probably because the victim feels embarrassed or responsible or something like that but in regards to successes to you know in addition to what I had already shared before there are some other examples for example the entire Hanson brothers that entire family everyone met their future wives this is insane So, at least two out of the three, not, oh no, all three of them met their wives. We're talking about Zach, Taylor, and Isaac Hansen. All three of them met their spouses at concerts. Um, And they were all fans. So, all of these girls were fans of Hansen. And... I think Zach and Taylor met their wives, Kate and Natalie, who attended a concert together in Atlanta. (laughs) They eventually married. And then Isaac spotted his future spouse, Nicole, in the middle of a crowd at a different gig. These folks are all still married today and they have many children. So there is much success in that. I think that's a great example because none of these women, it appears, were also like a celebrity of any sort or really worked in anything celebrity adjacent. Um, They have multiple children amongst them as well, just to let you know. Um, And then there's a few other cases, like there's a very bad case where (laughs) there's like the Nicolas Cage, Alice Kim case in which... She was a server in an L.A. restaurant. I don't know if she was really a fan, but they ended up getting married two months after she served. She waited on him, and then it resulted in a really bad divorce in 2016. Not a big surprise there. Um, And there are rumors, and I don't know how true this is. This is rumors, that... 
Kate Middleton had a poster of William, Prince William, on her bedroom wall several years before they met. Now, William and her ended up going to the same university together, our version of college. Um, So Kate has denied this. And... I tend to believe that that's a rumor. God, I hope that's a rumor. Because that is just creep level. Um, I believe Ringo Starr's first wife. He met her. She was a fan. She she was a fan. He met her in 65. That did not last. Um, hairdresser uh, Jillian Fink. Again, celebrity adjacent. Her, one of her big clients was Patrick Dempsey, probably most famous from the Grey's Anatomy world, the show that I refuse to watch. Everybody knows that. Who is close to me, I will not watch Grey's Anatomy. Um, they, she cut his hair for three years, and then he eventually asked her out. I think that's adorable. Um, and... She definitely knew him as a celebrity when he scheduled that appointment. I like that it took him that long to ask her out, though. That's pretty pretty adorable. Other stuff I've already really reported on. Um, and obviously, the weird paradigm with all of this... I've used the word paradigm twice in one episode. I don't know why. But the weird... It's that power level, right? So, if you're a fan of a celebrity, how you transition into the normalcy of this person just being, this person is just a person, but you have put them on this pedestal for so long. And one of the reasonings, one of the reasons with the Drake Bell case that you have so much power dynamic within there, not only was this girl underage, um, but this is a celebrity. This Drake Bell guy has been has definitely been used to getting praised his whole life. He hasn't really had a, much of a normal childhood because he was a child star. So there's a level of fuckery with that. Um, and there's just there would be no way unless he would have been respectful and kept in contact with her and made sure it was on the up and up and he wasn't sending her dick pics, which he did, um, and sending her inappropriate texts when she was underage, which he did. He did all of that junk. Um, very similar to, like, James Franco, which James Franco was doing all that shit with underage girls, too. Um, there was no way of this being legitimate, ever. He would have had to cut all of that stuff out and had and been the adult and said very... Specifically, even if she was being suggestive with him, like, this is inappropriate. Let's talk when you're of age. But he didn't do that because ego. And because he's a monster. Let's face it. He's a, he's a monster. Um, but those are, like, honestly, just the additional cases. Because I did talk about it in another episode So you might have to go back. You might have to go back and listen to that specific podcast, Mackenzie. But thank you for bringing this up because 
I'm always, I'm always fascinated with if this dynamic will work. Um, and there, there's a case here and there, but, um, I mean, there's also like the Matt Damon case where Matt Damon ended up, um, I think he ended up kind of marrying, he ended up marrying someone who was not, um, famous. And I thought she was, she was the assistant of another celebrity. And apparently, um, Matt Damon's current wife was a fan of his. But again, that might be, we might be assuming things on that. Um, I don't know how, I think she was more along the lines of celebrity adjacent. I don't think she was, saw him at that hero worship level. The biggest, you know, the biggest example of this always is the Tom Cruise, Katie Holmes dynamic. How Katie Holmes grew up in Toledo, um, idol worshiping Tom Cruise to a certain extent. There were posters of him on her wall and she would talk about that very publicly. And so when they got together, even though she was a celebrity in her own right, she, again, her star was, did not shine as bright as his. Um, it was not going to be like a Nicole Kidman situation in which Nicole Kidman, again, when she joined up with Tom Cruise, she was not as popular, um, or as, or as successful, but that's, her star continued to rise. And, uh, debatedly she has, more people would say she has a better career than him. Maybe not box office wise. He is a movie star and I consider her an actress. So that's a whole other story. But the dynamic between him and Katie Holmes, I don't think it ever had a chance. I think he knew that she was like this super fan at one point. You mix that in with Scientology. I don't know. I don't know. But um, another one I never talked about, I guess would be Justin Bieber and Haley Baldwin. Because Haley Baldwin is a few years younger than him. And she was a huge fan of his. And before she even started modeling, um, I know that her dad, who I know is a crazy religious zealot at this point, um, he made it possible for them to meet. Um, Like she has like a picture of her and Justin when she's backstage at one of his concerts and she looks so young, so, so young. And they seem to be going strong. So there is, love is possible between, I guess, the celebrity and the fan. (laughs) But I think it's still gotta be dicey. If you would love to watch a charming movie about this, folks, it is an older movie, um, a silly little rom-com called Win a Date with Tad Hamilton. It's from 2004. It is like, and it is the most 2004 movie you will ever see. Um, it's cute um, because the stars in it, it is people that were very popular in 2004. 
So you have Jennifer Goodwin, you have Josh Dumel, um, you have Kate Bosworth, Topher Grace, Sean Hayes, Nathan Lane. Could that be more 2004? Um, but essentially the concept is it's an American romantic comedy and the Kate Bosworth character is absolutely, she lives in middle America somewhere, works at like the Piggly Wiggly and she enters a contest to win a date with Tad Hamilton, who is the Josh Dumel character. And um, he comes to the town and he sweeps her off her feet and he legitimately really, really starts falling for her. But her heart belongs to someone else. Tale as old as time. It's cute. It's light. It's a good movie to watch if you're hungover or if you don't want your brain to work too hard. Just saying. Um, but it is kind of an example of that in a Hollywood version. So my recommendation, Mackenzie, I really don't know if I've pleased you with this answer, but your first part will be to go back and watch, listen to the previous Benifer episode at the, at the end where I go over many, many examples of this. Um, but I, I've given you a couple more, so hopefully that will help. All right. I love you all and have a wonderful day. I hope this podcast brings you joy. Check out the Pop Culture Persephone website for much more. And I will be talking with you next week with a guest host. It just won't be me. Bye now.